chapter 17, starting at verse 11. On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by 10 lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So here's an interesting story. Jesus and his followers are on the road to Jerusalem. Now Luke wants you to know that when he tells this story in this particular context. He wants you to know that this is Jesus' long road to the cross. And everything he describes happening along the way is meant to help us understand the nature of Christ's death on the cross and the resurrection to follow. He's trying to help you understand what Jesus came to do. This is a way for Luke to interpret to you in his writing the divine nature and the sacred mission of Jesus. So he's tied these events together in this order for a purpose. Now, what we're seeing is what I like to call a gray zone. And I didn't coin the phrase. Gray zone is a sociological term that's used a lot these days to describe the times we're living in. We're living in a gray zone period in history right now. There's just no certainty about much of anything right now. We, we've suffered through so much that we're not sure what's coming next and we're not sure that anything that we used to count on can be counted on indefinitely. So we're in a sociological gray zone right now and how fitting that we're reading this story because Jesus and his friends are traveling in a gray zone. They're not in Galilee. They're not in Samaria. They haven't reached Jerusalem yet. But these three major people groups are all affected in this story because the Jews of Jerusalem, represented by the priests that will be addressed with this problem of leprosy. You know, when I was a kid growing up in church, every time I heard them read about lepers, you know what I thought. Some of the kids here probably thinking the same thing. You know, what do wild cats with spots all over them have to do with it, right? We don't know when we hear leper that we're hearing about a person with leprosy. They were sick. They had a disease. But the priest was the ultimate authority in those days of medical matters. And the priest was trained through the system in Jerusalem. So we have this high view of scripture and the ministry of the priesthood that's representing Jerusalem. 
And then we have this group of people who are mainly from Galilee. And then we have this Samaritan person. And then we have people with leprosy. This is a gray zone because it's, it's unclear whose territory we're in and how all this is going to play out. The Jerusalem Jews would look down upon the rest of the people represented in this group without exception. They looked down on the Galilean Jews because they consider them country bumpkins. They consider them unsophisticated people, rednecks. They're like the East Coast and West Coast elitists in our country when they're looking down at Indiana and the Midwest on their trips back and forth from the big cities and they wonder why anybody would live in such a godforsaken place as this, right? That's how they look at Galilee. The elites in Jerusalem look at the Galileans that way. They talk funny, get these strange accents and Strange things that give them pleasure, like football on Friday night. Go figure. Then you've got Samaritans. Well, it turns out that the Galilean Jews and the sophisticated Jerusalem Jews both look down on Samaritans. Now, the reason they look down on Samaritans is because they think of them as a, a kind of a half-breed culture. They think of them as almost like savages. And this stems from a prejudice that was born out of the civil war between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom of Israel in the years following the reign of King Solomon. So basically what happens is the kingdom is divided. There's a civil war, not unlike our civil war in the United States history. And uh, basically it's a, it's a war between a agricultural culture of, of, you know, country folks and a society of city folks and industry. And it's not that different in the Israeli civil war of the Old Testament. So what happens is the southern kingdom is, is, the how, is where Jerusalem is. It's where the sophisticated northern, or southerners are of the, of the, the kingdom of, of Judah. And then the kingdom of Israel in the north is less well organized and less capable of holding up a single culture. And ultimately, when outsiders invade the area and conquer the land, they immediately conquered the northern kingdom and pretty much assimilated them out of existence. That's why you hear this occasionally, you hear this phrase when you're studying scripture of called the lost tribes of Israel, the lost tribes of Israel, because in Judah, there were two tribes represented that maintained their identity all the way through. But in Northern and the Northern kingdom, they were lost through assimilation. A conquering army comes in and the leader of this conquering nation intentionally takes away influencers and educated people and political leaders, pulls them out of there and then re introduces a new culture to the area and it's the culture of the conquering nation. So there's resentment between the Southern Kingdom people and the Samaritans because the Samaritans are the remnant of that overrun. And they consider Samaritans to be people who were not as faithful 
descendants of people who had not held the faith as firmly. Eventually, though, the southern kingdom also was conquered and assimilated. Okay, maybe that's more than you wanted to know, but here's the thing. The Jews thought they were better than everybody. The Israel, the Jews of, of, of Jerusalem thought they were better than everybody in this story. The Galileans thought they were better than at least the Samaritans and the lepers. And guess what? The Samaritans that are universally disliked, they think they're better than the lepers. So imagine that you are the Samaritan leper. Just try to wrap your mind around that for a second. Try to imagine that the nine other lepers are Jews, so they think they're better lepers than you because you're a Samaritan leper. Now, what's wrong with this picture? Have you figured it out yet? What's wrong with this picture? Everybody thinks they're better than somebody. That's what's wrong with this picture. And Jesus comes along and they say, Jesus, fix us. We're broken. And their brokenness is not just about their leprosy. In fact, the worst part of being a leper in those days was not the disease itself. And believe me, that was awful because if you had leprosy, it meant that your body was physically distorted. You looked scary. Your skin, your body was changed by this disease in a visible way that made you look a little less than human to people. And depending on what part of your body was affected, you know, it could make you downright frightening to look at. But even that did not drive the lepers to plead for mercy as much as the fact that it was an immediate uh, sort of excommunication or exile from community. If you were diagnosed with leprosy, and you got to think about it for a minute, if you went to the priest with a bad case of eczema, you were probably going to get diagnosed with leprosy. Then in an instant, your life changed forever. In an instant, you were an exile. You were an outcast. By law and social convention, you were no longer permitted to associate with anybody but other lepers and they lived outside of communities and they lived in horrible conditions. So these people were not only pleading for mercy from Jesus because of their sickness, but they were also pleading for mercy because everything that was the life they once knew was taken away the minute the priest said, you have leprosy. Gray zones happen when you are doing just fine and you know how your life's going to go from day to day and you're feeling comfortable and confident about the future and then everything changes and you end up in a gray zone. Life is turned upside down. So now that we've looked at all the players in this story, let's look at what's happened here. They've pleaded to Jesus for mercy to grant them healing and restoration to the community. And all he says is, go talk to the priest. And they do. Now, by the way, that's a hint that Luke is giving us that they're Jews because he told them to go see the priest. That's what you do under those circumstances. And the only reason they would go to the priest is to verify 
that they were healed. And so their assumption was Jesus is going to heal us. And Jesus just told us to go see the priest. So I guess we should go see the priest. So here are these 10 guys. And you just imagine these people in their rags turning around and shuffling off over to Shiloh Church to see Pastor Dan. I'm so glad that I'm not in the business of dealing with your medical issues. You should be glad too. But that's what they did. And as soon as they did, one of them goes, hey guys, look at your hands. Look at you. Look, you're healed. I'm healed. We're healed. And suddenly they realized that just turning and moving in the direction Jesus told them to go healed them. Now this amazing and weird and mysterious thing happens because nine of them just keep going. Now let's talk about them for a minute. Why would they do that? Because the priest has to verify that they are no longer infected. They have to have proof that they no longer have leprosy. Okay, and the priest is the one that issues the little card that says they got the inoculation, right? And so they're thinking, we're healed. Let's get on over to the priest's office right away. And they do. Now I'm going to wager, I don't know this for sure, but I got a hunch that probably when they told the priest how all this went down, the priest said, Okay, great. You guys can go back to your lives now. You can go back to your businesses. You can go back to your families. You can go back to fishing on Saturday or, well, Sunday they were Jews, right? So you could go back to, you know, all these things you like to do. You can go back to your life and, but don't tell anybody about Jesus. Don't tell anybody about that. And so they didn't. That's what it looks like to me. But the Samaritan he doesn't go to the priest. He doesn't need to. He just turned around and began to praise Jesus and thank Jesus right away. So what do we take away from this? Well, first of all, it tells us that the Lord really cares about the least among us, the marginalized. And I think we need to really take that to heart because as Christian believers, one of the things that we're unfortunately pretty poor at these days is intentionally reaching out to people who are marginalized. That the reality is, is that we like to do things with people like us. I mean, you don't have to feel bad about that necessarily, but let's face it, it's easy to go to church with people like you who are not particularly different from you. It's easy to hang out with people that you understand because they're like you. Jesus intentionally takes his followers into gray zones. He takes them into uncomfortable places. He invites them to interact with people that unsettle them because he cares deeply about those people. He understands that the human condition of sin is like leprosy. It set us on the margins of the kingdom of Christ, on God's kingdom. 
that we are people who are outcast from God's kingdom because we have a sin disease that makes us as ugly in the eyes of God as a leper looks to the healthy. And so he's trying to get us to understand that we are them until Christ saves us. We are them until Christ saves us. We're the outcast. We're the people on the margins. We're the people that are misunderstood or considered distasteful or disgusting. We spent our summer fighting for something sacred about God, but all the while trying to say that we still care deeply about people on the fringe people in the margins, people who are not universally accepted by the elites from Jerusalem or the devout country folks from Galilee or even the mixed population of the Samaritans. He cares deeply about the lepers, the ones who have been shoved out of society because of fear and misunderstanding because of lousy smells, ugly appearances, because of poverty. And the irony is, is that the, some of the most elite people in any group are some of the most poor people you'll ever meet because they are wealthy in things and they have a poverty of spirit. And the amazing thing that happens in this story is, is the man who was considered the very least of all the players in this story had the richest spirit. There was a richness of spirit that he had that superseded everything else that happens in this incident. On the way to the cross in Jerusalem, Jesus met a man who had nothing to give and he was the most worthy person in the bunch because he gave gratitude and thanks. He gave praise and honor to Christ because he understood that before Christ, he was separated from everybody. He was separated from society. He was separated from his family was separated from his home. He was separated from everybody because of this problem he had. And then Jesus gave him an option that he took and it changed his life forever. God cares about you because while you were yet sinners, Jesus died for you so that the thing that separates you from God and the kingdom of God, the real home, the real family, the eternal place where we belong because of Jesus, you can go home. You can go where you belong. And all you have to do is what he tells you to do. And what he tells you to do is turn in a new direction. That's called repentance. Because God honors faith, even a little bit of faith. Even the other nine got healed and their faith was so much smaller than the man who turned back to thank Jesus. But they got healed anyway. 
They got healed because Jesus told them to go see the priest, and they did. They were saved because they heard the Lord say what they had to do, and they did it. God loves gratitude. Gratitude is the thing that really, really warms the Lord's heart. And you can see that in Jesus in this story. I imagine him with tears in his eyes when the man is at his feet, praising him and thanking him. But here's the thing you need to understand about gratitude. And maybe this is why we don't express it more. Gratitude is a form of submission. Gratitude is a form of surrender. Saying thank you to somebody suggests that without them, you would not be as well off as you are. If you give me something that enriches my life, I thank you because without that gift, I would not be so enriched. Saying thank you is a way of saying I was missing something and then you gave it to me. I was incomplete and you completed me. Thank you. Thank you is a form of submission. Repentance is the ultimate expression of submission. And the way to repentance is thankfulness and forgiveness. And so the first thing you need to do if you're going to really enter the kingdom and go home where you belong in your mind, your heart, and your being, and every expression of your Christian living, the first thing you have to do is start saying thank you to the Lord. I know it's tempting to think that you have a nice car because you did that. It's tempting to think that you have good food on your table because you did that. It's tempting to think you have a lovely home because you did that. It's tempting to think that you live in a great community because it's full of people like you. But you want to know something? I talked to somebody at the first service. Right after the first service, I talked to somebody who had a nice vacation home in Sanibel Island. It's gone. It's gone. And the person told me they probably will never go back there again because it's gone. So you could think that you've created all of your wealth and your prosperity and all of the good things that happen in your life, and you could be right about that to a certain extent, but here's, here's some sobering news. There are forces that only God can control that can change it all in a heartbeat. You could be as healthy and strong today as you've ever been and then find yourself in the doctor's office being diagnosed with a condition that will separate you from everything and everybody that matters to you overnight. And only God has control over things like that and sometimes God lets you go through it. God cherishes gratitude because gratitude is an expression of humility. The person who gives thanks to God regularly is a humble person, and a humble person can be made contrite, and a contrite person can repent, and a repentant person can be born again and live forever in Christ's kingdom.
So start counting your blessings every day. Be thankful every day. If you wake up tomorrow morning, give thanks to God because you woke up. If you have food on your table, a warm bed on a cold night, give thanks to God because of the fact that so many do not. When you look into the eyes of your loved ones, be thankful that you're not alone. When you encounter friends, be thankful because you have friends. Every day there should be a thousand expressions of gratitude. You know what? You can make it a part of your daily rhythm in your life. Just like the way Anthony keeps time with that bass drum, there should be this steady rhythm in your life of thankfulness. Use those smart devices you're wearing on your wrist and carrying in your pocket and your purse to put up a reminder regularly. Have you given thanks in the last hour or so? Mine tells me to stand up all the time. Maybe I should just tell it to say, stand up and give thanks to God. Forgive people who have hurt you because it's an act of gratitude to God that you've been forgiven though you hurt him by rejecting his love and mercy and his authority to make your life complete. I recommend listening to music that puts you in a frame of mind of praise and thanksgiving every day. We're living in a gray zone right now in this world and it's an ugly, scary time for us because there's just not much in the way of certainty. But the one thing that you can do that represents certainty in difficult times is give thanks for everything that you did get today. Everything you were able to count on today. Every blessing that came despite your fear that it might come to an end someday. It hasn't yet, so give thanks. It's not as bad as it looks like it could be, but let's focus on what is good and right and perfect about our lives that we so readily take for granted and give Christ the glory. Let us pray. We thank you, Lord, for your word. Now burn it upon our hearts that we might be changed forever by it. Amen.